the other thing to think about with ASCs is who's managing it, who are the providers that have privileges there, are they high volume, high return providers, are they low volume, low return providers, because basically you're running a business in a business. Hey, it's Justin Harvey. Thanks for tuning in to the Anesthesia and Pain Management Success Podcast. With APM Success, we take a close look at important topics pertaining to business, practice management, personal finance, and careers for anesthesiologists and pain management physicians. We work hard to take your critical questions straight to the experts. Thanks for listening. Hello and welcome to episode 152 of APM Success. I'm very pleased to be joined today by friend of the show and personal friend, Tina Rivenbark. Tina, thanks for being here. Oh, thanks for having me back. Tina is one of those people that you're just glad that you know whenever you're in private practice. And she's one of those people who, if she can't solve a problem immediately herself, she knows the person to go to. She's been a valuable resource for me and for many clients uh, in the past. So excited to have her here to share from her wisdom and expertise. I'm excited to be back, Justin. Thanks again. What I wanted to tackle today is something that Tina and I have jokingly sort of corresponded with, corresponded about in the past, the idea of the uh, the pain superfellowship. And that is something I've discussed separately a little bit on the show as well. But Tina, can you describe what we're talking about when we're talking about the superfellowship? So, I mean, it's it's a little bit comical, but it's really not. It's kind of a a, a sad thing when you're working with physicians who have gotten themselves into a post-fellowship employment situation that perhaps is not what they were striving for or expecting or the details weren't worked out clearly. And the next thing you know, basically you've spent two years, three years past post-fellowship working towards goals in a practice that, you know, maybe the practice owner does not share the same goals. I actually had a conversation about this just yesterday um, with a physician who called and said, I love my job. I love where I'm at. I love where I work. I love my lifestyle, but it is, has become extremely apparent that I will always be working for this person. They have no aspirations for making me a partner. And I, you know, I didn't realize that or didn't explore that enough or didn't understand that. Or perhaps their perceptions changed since I came on. I'm not sure. But now what do I do? And so that's why I, Justin and I talk about like the super fellowship because you're you're working, but you're not building equity. And you know, it's setting all that those expectations and groundwork and understanding everyone's position on the front end is the best, probably the only way to avoid that on the back end. You and I were just talking about the doc that I helped to open a practice in January. So now close to five months in, you know, has always been an employed physician for the last 10, 12 years. And is like, wow, now I get it. Now I realize why someone, a private practice owner is not eager to hand anybody half or a third of their practice coming in the door because that person you're handing that to has not been in the trenches, understanding how to hire and train staff, understanding how to find supplies when, you know, when there are supply chain order issues, managing finances that you've never had to really do, just kind of juggling all the balls in the air. And after the last five months, I feel like I have a PhD in crisis management to some degree, but, 
you know, if someone has not been through that, then they may or may not have the same perspectives on decision making. Like they might want to hire someone differently than I would want to hire for different reasons because they just haven't had that exposure. So I thought that was a pretty good analogy that I generally, I spend a lot of time working with fellows because I go and try to speak to a lot of the fellowship programs to just give these folks an idea of what post-fellowship look, looks like. But that was a cool perspective that I thought was super shareable just so you, know, you can kind of see both sides as you're trying to negotiate that. Yeah. So for any fellows listening, if you've just started your uh, fellowship year or any program directors and you want to hit Tina up and have her come and talk to your cohort, I'm sure that would be a very valuable time for them. And she does Zoom meetings in, in person as she can for lots of fellows. Yeah, I really enjoy that part because I, even if it's not someone that I end up working with or helping to connect with a current client as they're expanding their provider staff or whatever, it's cool to always see those folks, you know, I'll see them at meetings and conferences down the line and, you know, just have, just build that network. Yeah, I do the same thing. I actually had one last night. It was a Zoom meeting with a few physician colleagues, actually, and we were essentially trying to shorten the learning curve and help doctors once they're released out into the wild to watch out for the landmines. And that's definitely uh, something that I appreciate having the opportunity to do whenever the opportunities do present. I think you bring up a great point in that somebody, a physician who had then gone into practice after being employed for a while, had this revelation, oh my gosh, why would anybody ever admit a partner? <laughs> because they see how problematic that can be. I think having mentors who you have no aspiration or plan to ever work with these people, but maybe they're in the same practice model that you want to be in, being able to glean those types of insights and w without the strange, awkward, like quasi conflict of like, am I going to potentially be a future partner, but just say, what do you know? What have you gone through that you wish prospective partners or prospective employees knew about how hard it is to run a business and be a physician at the same time? I think those types of conversations are always, whenever you can have them, incredibly profitable to just understand, to get in the mind of a private practice owning doctor as it relates to questions of employment and partnership for younger physicians. And I think not only is it helpful for the perspective that you get back from that potential employer, potential mentor, I think it gives them, you know, kind of like a, a relief to say, hey, even though, even though Justin's not been where I'm at, he at least appreciates that there's a lot that it took for me to get to this place. So having that conversation and bringing that perspective to the table has to make that negotiation process better, I would say. And I want to also give a quick plug just for conference participation to be able to build this network this relational network. Because if you don't get out and about and you're not putting yourself in the way of other physicians who are, you know, living their lives and running their practices, if you don't get in their way and introduce yourself and initiate a relationship, especially in person, that's just a unique opportunity. Tina and I are going to be at Aspen in a couple of weeks in Miami. And it's a great way to, to meet people, to network, and to be able to gain that valuable perspective. And for fellows or even newer attendings who haven't been you know, what they're asking, you know, I'm getting paid on production. Why should I take time off of work to go do a thing? If, especially if CME isn't something you're interested in. 
you never know when you're going to meet somebody who's going to give you that life-altering revelation in terms of career opportunity or practice management stuff or be able to connect you to someone in their network who can help you get something that you desperately need. And conversely, being able to offer that to others is part of the what makes that ecosystem really valuable. Yeah, and we'll be at Aspen, but I'll also be teaching a practice management course at NANS in January, which I think is in Vegas this year. So, you know, there's sometimes I'm guilty of it myself. I get so busy doing client work that I'm like, okay, I'm not going to go to this MGMA conference this time, or I'm not going to do this this time. I'll, I'll, I'll download and do all the CME, whatever, but I just, I can't stop. But you kind of have to back up a little bit and reframe that thought because every time I do, I realize what a reinvestment it is in not just the relationships that you build, but the skills you get and the, and the understanding of who's solving a problem, perhaps a different way that, you know, might, might be something to consider. My husband's favorite saying is nobody has the market cornered on good ideas. So, you know, just being open-minded and listening, talking, but listening can be super helpful, even for the day-to-day things like, Hey, I can't get steroids today or, you know, my supplier is out of contrast. What the heck am I going to do now? There's some people that have come up with some pretty creative ideas around that, that, you know, I only happen to know because I had one client say that. And then I called another and they said, oh, well, here's what we're doing, which is not a solution I would have ever thought of. So, I mean, there's lots to be gathered and, and garnished by, you know, reaching out to each other and, and having those conversations. And that's why you should all find Tina at Aspen because she knows how to solve all of those types of practice management problems. So let's talk about some of the other landmines. You know, you and I both have a passion for education and being able to help physicians avoid bad circumstances that result from informational asymmetry. The things that especially fellows and newer attendings don't know that they need to know that the grizzled veterans out there in the real world often take advantage of in order to give a doctor a, a suboptimal deal. And it's not always, yeah, I'll just leave it at that. So let's talk through a couple different practice models and the way that, you know, if you were in front of a group of fellows right now, the things that you would be trying to orient them towards or calibrate expectations or important questions to ask in those different practice settings to be able to make sure that their informational asymmetry is as leveled out as possible with the party with which they're negotiating. Right. And and so what I do when I go and speak at the fellowship programs is I'll take a PowerPoint or if it's done via Zoom, thank you, COVID, present the PowerPoint, basically just comparing and contrasting your options post-fellowship. So there's remaining in academics as an attending or perhaps going to a teaching hospital, employed as, at a hospital, at a hospital-based clinic. There's a, the VA medical center system is always hiring just about. And then there's, you know, the super complex things like starting a PSA with a hospital yourself or starting your own practice or negotiating an employed position with a private practice. And is that going to lead to partnership or is it not? If it is, like what kind of metrics have to be met for that to be an offering? You know, what's that expectation? And there's a lot to those things. And I generally try my best to get to the fellowship programs in August, September, just because, I mean, in July, you're just really getting your feet wet and finding your way around the halls, but August, September, 
that clock's starting to tick pretty consistently and rapidly. And if you're going to start a practice or going to have time for in-depth negotiations and understanding, really, you need to give yourself as much of a timeline as possible. So, you know, I like to say, hey, if you're planning to start your own practice, let's try to do that before Thanksgiving. Let's try to get, you know, some of that on the on the path. But really by January, if you're seeking an employed physician, employed position, you should be applying for jobs, understanding what those employment agreements look like, what are the details of the contracts that you, you know, what are the high points, what are the smaller details that may be important down the road, those types of things, and understanding how to do that and do it well. In terms of pain specifically, what are you seeing in terms of the marketplace dynamics of demand? And is it mapping on in terms of all the other demand for other specialties where like no one can hire doctors fast enough? Well, I I mean, pain is certainly in high demand. One in three patients over the age of 30 is going to be a pain patient before retirement age. So you think about one out of every three people in the United States, that's, that's significant. And we're only graduating maybe 300, 350 pain fellows a year. That's a lot. So I would say the demand is high. And it, in the geographical areas that are less desirable, obviously, there's a, a relationship salary-wise. So if you want to go and work in Wisconsin, then the salary expectations are different than if you want to go and work in Miami. You know, and the competition for those positions is higher. The the need for pain physicians in the areas where the population is older, like uh, Florida, Arizona, North Carolina, South Carolina, is probably higher as well. And then it just depends on what you're looking for geographically. Where's your family located? Where do you want to live? Having the personal support systems, and then kind of backing into Okay, if I'm if I'm an hour away from my parents, but it's a place that I can get a good job with a competitive salary, then that works for me. For uh, fellows or newer attendings that you've seen that have really done a good job of due diligence and have really thoroughly vetted opportunities and gotten most of what they expected, what characterizes those physicians and what did they do in order to succeed? You know, besides talk to you early on and have you answer all their questions. Yeah, I was going to say generally. I wouldn't have much interaction with them post fellowship if they're if they got everything they wanted. Other than hey, how are you doing at a conference? That kind of thing. The ones that come to mind again started early, kind of went to all the conferences, met people, understood you know the the three sides to every story kind of perspective, and then really had a good sense of what they needed. Did they need stability over? income? Do they have a risk tolerance or not? What kind of quality quality of life are they looking for? Call, no call, those types of things. Just understanding really what their, their priorities are and then mapping that to the opportunities. For the ones who do seek you out later on when they, they have gotten a bad deal, what types of common mistakes do you find that physicians have made? Oof. And while you're thinking, I'll let you think about that because I have one that comes immediately to mind. The low-hanging fruit in terms of questions to ask is you want to understand 
why is a practice hiring, and what is turnover like for physicians of your strata in the recent past? So if you're the you know seventh associate, you know the new physician, and they're swapping out every four months before you came in the door, wouldn't wouldn't that be something you wanted to know, especially if it's a smaller practice or there's no room for you to insulate yourself from perhaps coworkers that are going to make your life miserable? So asking about turnover is really important. Exactly. And I, and I don't think a lot of fellows grasp that. They're looking at, you know, how big's the salary? What's the, what's the bonus opportunity? What are the benefits like? What's the relocation? Are you going to pay for me to move? All these things that are short-term significant, right? Long-term significant is, are you going to be able to be happy, productive, and long, you know, long-term sustainability at the practice that you go to? Because it's it's not easy to move and take a job and buy a house and move your family and get your children in school and this and that, and then be uprooted because this opportunity did not pan out the way that you had anticipated. And then you're dealing with non-competes and where can I go? How far do I have to be? How's this going to roll out? Um, and it can be you know, pretty torturing for a, a physician and their family. But yeah, the, the asking the hard questions, who was here before me? Where are they now? Why, why are they not still here? Can I speak to them? And obviously there are answers to those questions that are opportune and then there's answers to those questions that there are flags and you have to be able to recognize that. I know that Florida is a, uh, a hotbed for some of the larger pain practices and, and then some of the Northeast areas are, are as well. But if, you know, if, if you've got a mega group that's churning and burning and, and got doctors coming in and out faster than you can get them credentialed, then that should tell you something for sure. Another thing that I've seen is uh, you want to understand the relationship that your compensation mechanism has to the incentive for your employer and for the employed. Meaning if you come in and you're salaried or salary plus bonus, the way that an employer would economically optimize for that, what they want is the lowest unit cost of production. Meaning they want you to do the most RVUs possible and because the, the cost is fixed. <laughs> if they're going to pay you 400,000 flat, they want you to do 10 bajillion work RVUs in order to earn that 400,000. And so if you have a capped upside, you want to make sure that there are reasonably recognizable guardrails around your time and your production so that you don't turn into somebody who's being, you know, like you said, Tina, churned and burned, worked really, 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 really hard for a fixed cost. And then you end up hating your life and wanting to leave as soon as possible. If you're going to be worked hard, you want to be able to have an equitable compensation structure that's going to allow you to participate in the high production that you are creating. Well, exactly. And, you know, and the other thing, I, I, I heard a story actually at Aspen last year of a provider, a young provider, not long out of fellowship, who got into an employed situation and hadn't been paid in six months. So, and that was like, well, wait, say, run that by me one more time. You haven't been paid in six months? No. My practice owes me X hundreds of thousands of dollars. And, you know, for this particular individual, not married, no children, things like that. So basically living as they would have lived as an undergrad. <laughs> but, 
you know, a, a trained professional. And I was like, well, you, then you just don't go to work tomorrow. That's, <laughs> that's how you solve that. Like, how, how is that? So I think understanding, and, and you may have an opinion on this, how do you vet the financial worth and strength of a group that you're, employ- that you're seeking employment with? Because they're not going to lay their tax returns out on the table. So, you know, maybe that's a, maybe that's a, an extra kind of black box kind of scenario, you know, like there's an independent third party, the practice submits financials or some level of something demonstrating their worth to this independent third party. And then that independent third party can write this practice as an ABC. I don't know. I mean, that might be something to chase later. Yeah. There's also qualitative red flags, you know, asking about staffing during COVID and, and things like that. If you had to lay everybody off or furlough people or people who are on production only had, you know, went down from five days a week to three and a half because there just wasn't administrative staff to support the patients or whatever. Those can be signs of, if not financial unhealth, at least significant operational unhealth that are going to significantly impact if you're getting paid on production, the amount of money you're going to be able to earn. Exactly. COVID with the expansion of the opportunity for telemed and, and all these different things. If a pain doc didn't do at least as well, maybe better during COVID when you factor in the PPP money, I guess, then there's something wrong because every, every client that I deal with outpaced themselves COVID years. And, and I do think a lot of that was, the telemedicine piece allowing them to keep pace, uh, keep touch with the patients, and you know, bring the patients in for parking lot drive-by UDS screens and things like that. I mean, drug screens and things like that. I have a couple more private practice questions I want to ask, but before we, it's it's easy to sort of go down the that rabbit hole with pain management. I'm curious, you know, for this class of hypothetical fellows, some of whom are going to go into academics or VA or things like that. Can you give a couple thoughts or things that you've seen as far as, you know, either landmines or unique opportunities or questions to ask for folks who are vetting those types of opportunities? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that's pretty cool that's a little different twist on private practice where you kind of actually own your own entity, but maybe not as much risk is exploring collaborative agreements with either other specialties or rural community hospitals, places where there's a need and an opportunity where somebody else can provide the space staff equipment. That, that's not something that you would just, that, that's common sense or common knowledge, but those agreements when, when done well can be super lucrative and less risky for new providers. And so you're describing like a physician service agreement, a PSA? Yep, a professional service agreement, either between a hospital and a physician, or um, sometimes it can be other practices, group practices or networks as well. I want to do a separate episode on this particular item because it's been an area of some interest of mine for a while. For a physician who thinks, oh, wow, I'm glad I know that that's out there. I want to make sure that the employment agreement that I'm signing or the institution with which I'm going to be employed is going to perhaps create opportunity or it could exist for something like that. What types of questions should they be asking? Maybe it's just, can I do a PSA while I'm employed here? Or what do the economics of that look like? 
How, how would you recommend they approach that? You mean if they take a, an employed position, you're talking about with academia or private practice? Yeah. Or, or like, how do you leave the door open for a PSA? Or maybe is that going to be the, the full-time thing that this doctor is doing? Or is that like a side, you know, I'm carving out, I want to work 60% with University Hospital ABC and Wednesdays and Fridays, I want to have a PSA with this thing out of town. And that's maybe outside the purview of the employment agreement. Or how would that generally be structured? Yeah. So, I mean, I think if you went to work for university hospital, that just needs to be addressed up front in the employment agreement so that there's not, you know, paragraph 37, section 14 that eliminates that as an option for you without you knowing. There are plenty of opportunities for a private physician to take that to a, to a hospital directly and have it be their primary position, but understanding that you do share some of the risk of starting a private practice because you're starting a new practice. There's not patients already coming in the doors. There's not already butts and chairs, that type of thing. Um, so you're, you're actually going to have to have some elbow grease, some beat the street cap um, investment on your part to get out there and make it. And particularly I think if I if I could convey one thing to new fellows, if you can get to the point in your fellowship, take all the cadaver classes you can take, try and get your DIG training from Abbott, you know, participate in it, just plan on your weekends being spent any and everywhere you can go to get as much advanced procedure training as you can so that you're comfortable betting on yourself. Because if if I'm a hospital CEO, if I'm a physician who owns a private practice, if I'm, you know, somebody in academia, no matter what, that level of confidence that says, hey, I don't need the big salary. I just need a base to get through with my necessities month to month because I'm confident that I'm going to be a producer. When you get to the point that you are, have enough confidence in understanding of your skills and your ability to go out there and make it day to day to day, that's when you're going to be able to, to best negotiate, I think, an agreement with any of the potential partners. If you come in and want a large salary and are not willing to take any salary risk at all, then if I'm sitting on the other side of that desk, that tells me you don't know if you can produce or not, right? So that's kind of a flag for me in that, you know, that fixed overhead that you're talking about is going to be significantly watered down. Yeah. And so what we're talking about here is fixed versus variable cost from the employer's side. If you're hiring a doctor, having a low fixed and high variable will allow you, for example, in times like COVID, and this is when it could work against you as a doctor, if you have a 200 base and then production upside from there, if there's no patients coming in the door, you're only going to make the base. But from a from an equitableness standpoint, you're never going to be the guy who's doing 12 or 14,000 RVUs who's only making $400,000 because you're very, very, very productive in helping lots of patients. And the executives like that because, well, they're never going to be losing money on you as your your compensation goes up, but only when your production goes up. So that's something that 
the manager types in the C-suite are going to at least appreciate as people with business and finance backgrounds. Right. And, and I don't think for the most part, most employers don't have an issue paying somebody what they're worth. They just want that demonstrated worth, if that makes sense. Like, who's going to take the risk on the front end? Is it going to be you or is it going to be me? You know? And I think you put yourself in a better position to negotiate if you have that confidence level, that demonstrated track record, and you've gathered every tool in your tool belt that you can get to be able to drive those RVUs when, and hit the ground running. Something that I always am interested in is the, the difference between practice ownership and surgery center or other ancillary ownership. So for someone, a pain doctor who's thinking about opportunity holistically and saying, not only do I, am I going to be a partner at this practice, but what does that mean in terms of these other means of wealth building? How would you encourage somebody to think about that? And here's, I guess, the question behind the question is, does practice ownership matter if surgery center ownership can be part of the equation without being a partner in the practice itself? First of all, I think that's going to vary depending on location, because in a CON state, surgery center ownership is far more valuable than in a non-CON state, right? Because your competition is controlled in a CON state. And what is CON for our listeners? Certificate of need, sorry. So if, for example, North Carolina is a certificate of need state currently, that may change. So if you want to add any equipment over $350,000, if you want to open any surgical suites, nursing home beds, any of those things, basically you go to the DHHS and there's a board that sits there and says, yes, we have additional need in these counties or no, these beds are not being taken up now anyway, or you know, these ORs have this amount of bandwidth to see additional patients. So we don't want to give you a CON and put you know, two rural hospitals out of business because they're not able to get the procedural productivity that they need. Thus, it limits access for patients for basic health care. So CON state, if it's a non-CON state, that ownership can be watered down. The other thing to think about with ASCs is who's managing it? Who are the providers that have privileges there? Are they high volume, high return providers? Are they low volume, low return providers? Because basically you're running a business and a business. You're meeting overhead both places. You're paying administrators. You're probably paying management companies. So it, that can be great if the surgery center is super profitable or has the opportunity to be super profitable. But it could also be where you're writing checks at the end of the month to the surgery center for them to make payroll if you're not careful. Yeah, I just had a thought when you said that, you know, I wonder how, how many, what percentage or what personality type says, as long as you're good to me, my schedule's good, you pay me well, I don't care if I ever earn anything, you know? I mean, I guess that's the folks that end up working for a hospital system or in the VA or at their, you know, prospective pain programs. but. I just laugh about that a little bit after my conversation with the physician yesterday and that, you know, I was getting paid well and I didn't have to worry about who came to work <laughs> kind of thing, you know? Anyway, yeah. 
I think knowing yourself and what you want is obviously really important. And, you know, if you have good employment and never need to worry about the ownership burdens, that can be a really great thing. It does necessitate that you... So here's the... Aside from the sort of the personality preferences around ownership and autonomy and decision-making, the reason that I, as a financial advisor, like physicians to be able to own a share of a practice, a share of a surgery center, a share of the revenue or profits from other ancillaries is because of the wealth building that it creates in terms of someone's going to buy that business from you in the future for a, a multiple of the profits. And that is part of your financial independence. So when you're ready to start working less, you trade your surgery center shares for a multiple of the profits, and then you can do whatever you want and you don't need to be a doctor anymore, or you can be a doctor less hours a week if you want to. So that's why ownership is valuable and important. However, here's the big caveat. If you can build wealth in an employed model, which you can, you just need to do it you need to take a different approach because then your salary is the primary means by which you're going to be able to do that. So you got to basically save a bunch of the money that you're making along the way to be able to build the same financial independence that a doctor with ownership stake in a valuable entity is going to be able to have a little bit of a head start. So for you to catch up as an employee, you need to just save more of your money. Right. Any other landmines or stories that come to mind, cautionary tales or things that you've seen personally that you think our listeners would benefit from hearing? I mean, I think it really just without getting into specifics or divulging any, anything that shouldn't be divulged. I, I think it really just comes down to folks that either didn't understand well their compensation program and, you know, overhead and how the overhead affects what they walk away with at the end of the day, either bonus or, or straight compensation or not understanding the the owner's perspective on partnerships and what they want to see in a partner and how they want that person to interact. Because basically joining a partnership with another provider is kind of like, I, I use this reference a lot. It's like getting married without ever dating. So you meet this person, you go to dinner a couple of times, you exchange documents between attorneys and then wham bam the honeymoon is here <laughs> i think understanding that that relationship isn't developed and how to communicate and communicate well so that you know you're not running down the hall seeing 50 patients in a day with feeling like you're not getting any support or on the converse you're not seeing 10 patients a day and and they're writing a check to you for $35,000 a month in salary. And every time they walk by you, they're just disgusted. I mean, it's just, you know, I think getting that balance and figuring out, okay, in six months, where do you see us? But six months, let's sit down and have a conversation. 12 months, you know, 18 months and make sure that everyone's still on the right track because it's, it really is, whether it's intentional or not, it's super easy to get caught up in today, this patient, this minute, this phone call, this whatever, and not have those conversations that are not necessarily easy to have. But if you can get to a place or find a, an opportunity that you have comfort, that you can have commitment to communication from you know, the owners or partners or whomever, the CEO of the hospital, whomever it has to be, then I think even 
if going in this situation wasn't perhaps the optimal offer on the table, I think you're still ahead of the game, if that makes sense. Totally agree. Uh, I think that proactive communication and basically just building your professional life in a way that you're not going to be the person who only realized two years from now that the thing that you're doing has been a total waste of time and you've been taken advantage of. I think building, if possible, building even contractually defined checkpoints. I'm always a fan of, especially if there's partnership involved, like put it in the contract. Every three months, we're going to sit down and talk about how it's going and you're going to get a rank of one, you're doing terrible, 10, you're doing awesome so that you don't only get the number one score after two month, two years of not talking about it. Because if it doesn't work, it, it's not always going to work, but find out in three months. <laughs> and if you can communicate and, and get ahead of things, then that's really all you can ask for. Because like you said, the partnership is an act of faith, or even an employment agreement is an act of faith between two people, two entities, and you hope it works, but it doesn't always. But if you can mitigate the downside through proactive communication, then you've really done the best that you can do. Yeah. And I mean, two years isn't the worst. Uh, I mean, it's some of some of the time it's three years, five years, 10 years before somebody figures out, wow, this is just really not what I wanted. And that's that's when you then you have other conversations because you're further in your professional lifespan. And then, you know, how confident are you? You know, do you want to take on debt? Those kinds of things. And from the financial side, for a physician who's spent seven years assuming that eventually they're going to own a valuable asset in terms of the business, and they never get access to that asset, and they've been spending their whole salary the whole time, that's an unenviable position. Exactly. But, you know, I, I try to, when I have physicians come to me and they've worked in an environment that perhaps wasn't, didn't meet their expectations for how, whatever length of time, you know, I, I try to at least impart to them, perhaps it didn't end the way you wanted, but think about how much you learned along the way. You learned what it's like to be an employee. You learned the things that either plainly or inadvertently sent a signal to you. You know, what I was supposed to meet with so-and-so at lunch. They canceled three times in a row. Clearly, I'm not priority. If you can even if you're in a situation that you feel like you want to exit, if you can frame your mind around understanding the things that you learned and make yourself better as an employer, a practice owner, referring provider, whatever, you know, I think there's value there. I really do. Yeah. At the end of the day, you got to just enjoy the ride. Exactly. I mean, just make, find something good in it. Right. And, and, I promise you, if you if you think about it, there is, there's always something good in it. But again, I think as fellows, getting the most that you can get out of your fellowship while you're there is so, so important. Because it, you know, I think you and I talked about this last time, Justin. There is a significant spectrum of fellowships. I even had a anesthesia attendant. Um, resident call me two weeks ago who's applying for fellowships in the fall for next year and said, Hey, you know, I've got a great opportunity where I'm at. They want me to stay. That would be great. It would be comfortable. What don't I know? And I said, well, think about, um, talk to the current pain fellows. How many patients are they seeing a day? What are they doing as far as advanced procedures? What are they, how are they interacting with the attendings? You know, there's literally 
I know of two fellowships within an hour of each other that one program, those pain fellows see 30 to 35 patients a day, month one. The other pain program, those those fellows are seeing eight to 10 patients a day, year end. And so what does that tell you? Well, that what that says is I'm going to have to figure out because I, I can go on the record right now and tell you and anybody listening that eight to 10 patients a day, post fellowship in private practice is not going to get it done. It's not going to get it done for you as an entrepreneur. It's not going to get it done for an employer. It's not, it's just not going to get it done. So then you're finishing fellowship. They're pushing you out the door. Congrats. Here's your piece of paper having to figure out how to get yourself from eight to 10 patients a day to a level where you can see something that's more sustainable. And I'm not saying it always has to be 35 patients a day, but you know, if you can get, take those lumps and those beatings while you've got an attending there with you, I think that, that, that has something to say. Absolutely. Well, we'll wrap it up there. So anybody listening, go to apmsuccess.com slash 152. This is episode 152. If you want Tina's contact information, it's going to be there. If you want to meet up at Aspen, you can get in touch there. Tina, as always, thank you for joining us on the podcast and look forward to seeing you soon. Thank you, Justin. Have a great day. If you liked what you heard this week, head on over to apmsuccess.com where you can find more content and free resources to help you build a successful career in anesthesia and pain management. If you wanted to leave a review in iTunes, I'd also really appreciate it. Thanks for using some of your valuable time to join me today on APM Success.